wrestling fans, welcome to another exciting episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz. I want to thank you all for tuning in and joining me as always is my esteemed co-host, Mr. John Boucher. Esteemed. April. It's April, Al. April Fool's. We have April Fool's. <laughs> no, we are recording maybe. this on the 18th, so this we are long oh, okay. past the Day of Fool's. Okay, we couldn't offer up a uh, charting the territories NFT or anything like that. No, uh, no uh, I think everything we do is going to be quite fungible. Okay, cool. It will be well, both fun. My... It will be both fun and fungible. That's how I like my my charts. Funtivities. We have lots <laughs> of funtivities planned. Well, this month, John, we're going to be looking at the second quarter of 1981 in Mid-South Wrestling. We're going to recap the two big angles that happened in the territory during the quarter, one involving Ernie Ladd being suspended, and the other involving Paul Orndorff oversleeping and apparently waking up very, very cranky. There was also a big Superdome card with a tag team title tournament that we'll touch on, and we'll, of course, uh, recap some of the other faces that show up in the territory at the time and use our statistics to quantify their role. And from there, we'll go back to the fourth quarter of 1963, where we have a very brief but significant run in the McGurk territory from somebody far better known for their career in the Pacific Northwest. We also have, John, one of the more unusual reasons for a house show being canceled. Do you know what I'm talking about? I believe I do. This was November. Should I spoil it here? Yeah, go right ahead. This was November 22nd, 1963. John, yeah. what happened on that day? That was uh, JFK. Yes. Yes. So John has listened to his Billy Joel songs recently, <laughs> as is up to what date else, on, what else all do of, I have to yes, on all of the world's history from that Billy Joel song. But yes, that happened uh, in the, I think, mid-afternoon of November 22nd. And the house show that McGurk had scheduled for Oklahoma City that night, which was a Friday night, ended up being canceled due to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But along the way, John, we're going to take some various detours. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about a lot of the wrestlers who show up uh, both in the second quarter of 1981 and the fourth quarter of 1963. And to best sum it up, John, in this episode, we're going to take various detours from a shave and a haircut in Mexico to an asteroid in Japan to a game of human chess in Dallas to a dirty donkey in Houston to a whole lot of dirty laundry in Memphis to Psycho Susie's Waterfront Lounge in Minneapolis to some California mountain goats what the hell do any of these have to do with wrestling well listen and find out from there we're going to go to our stats 101 feature and we're going to talk about sources and how to properly weigh historical wrestling information based not just on the source but perhaps also by the source's source if said source was properly sourced of course and we're going to have the second edition of our new monthly feature, This Month I Learned, where both John and I name one new thing we learned since last month. And next month, John, we're going to start a new feature. We're just, we're just unloading new features by, yeah. the, uh, by the dozens, apparently. <laughs> but last month uh, on the podcast, uh, we did a live unboxing of some great memorabilia that John sent me as a birthday present. And so I thought that was really cool, not only that I didn't know what it was, but that I got to open it up live on the podcast and share it with all our listeners. So I want to do something like that on a regular basis. And John, my original idea was just to make you send me stuff from your personal collection every month. 
And once you ran <laughs> out, I would just send it back to you, you know, in piecemeal in different combinations. But that's not going to work. So we've actually, I've created a budget and we're going to have a feature next month. I don't know what it's going to be called yet, but right now I'm naming it John Buys Me Random Shit on eBay and I do a live unboxing. Uh, I'm, I'm providing $50 per month and John is instructed to spend about $50 per month on mostly wrestling related stuff that he can find on eBay. But, you know, there's there's no limits to what it can be. So, John, you've got the power here. Are you going to use it wisely? Or are you going to send me, you know, the Young Bucks book? That's a lot of pressure. Right now. Um, no, I, I really I really think I, I I'm going to use my power for good. It gets tricky not knowing what you have in your collection already, uh, not so knowing exactly what sort of stuff you might have a personal preference for. Um, you know, if I'm buying something for you that I haven't seen or held in my hands beforehand, I'm sort of keeping my fingers crossed that it is of good quality and has been accurately described in the auction. So those are those are the uh, the, the, the tricky parts of this. But my my yeah. attention and my power. Well, it's always good. And always I think that'll good. make it fun. As far as what my preferences are, I think you have a general idea of of my likes and dislikes when it comes to yeah. wrestling and timeframes and territories. And if you, you know, if we end up getting something that was not as advertised or is in very poor condition, we can always name the eBay seller uh-huh. on the podcast and, and, and shame them publicly. I guess uh, we could do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, this will that. And that's part of the fun is that it's, it's like a box of chocolates because you never know what you're going to get other than you think it's chocolates. Yes. So we <laughs> hope that we'll uh, be doing that, but we're planning on starting that next month. So John, not, and like I said, he's, he's going to try and spend as much out of that 50 as possible per month. Um, for example, if he finds a really cool thing that costs $35 and can't find anything else, he's kind of has to send me other things or, you yeah. know, or one other thing. So that will make it kind of fun uh, to yeah. see what other things he comes up with. You also know, I like uh, music and baseball. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes perhaps the, uh, the items will be from there. So yeah, I like those things as well. Fun. So it'll work out. It'll, it'll work out well, I think. Yeah, and of course, throughout all of this podcast, we will make reference to the statistics we use, which you can find in uh, more detail on our blog, chartingtheterritories.com. Charting the Territories is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk, Bill Watts territory from the late 50s through the mid-80s. In addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoted in the territory during that time, we use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture, and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to regularly. The first is a spot rating. Spot stands for statistical position over time, and it measures a wrestler's average position, or spot, on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher spot rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. We'll talk more about that as we get to the spot ratings. The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data, and it's used to measure what I call the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens around the loop on the house shows and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. As mentioned at the top of the podcast, one of the big angles during the second quarter of 1981 was the suspension of Ernie Ladd. 
As with most of the more memorable Watts angles, there's a whole lot more to the story. So to properly talk about this angle, we need to go back to the feud between Junkyard Dog uh, and he's feuding with Ernie Ladd and Ladd's partner, Leroy Brown. JYD had a couple of different partners over time. We talked a few months ago about Don Diamond originally being put in that role and not really lasting long as a main eventer. Uh, as we look at the roster in this quarter, we find uh, guys like Buck Robley, Bill Watts, and Dusty Rhodes being brought in on a part-time basis to join Junkyard Dog in his feud with Ladd and Leroy, but uh, eventually they bring back Dick Murdoch. I believe he comes back at the very end of the first quarter, and JYD and Murdoch become a regular team, and at a house show in New Orleans, uh, in a title match with Bill Watts as special referee, JYD and Murdoch beat Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown to win the Mid-South Tag Team titles. However... That title change is ixnade as the Mid-South Board of Directors rules that Bill Watts was not an impartial referee during the match. Heaven forbid a referee show any bias, John. Yeah. As coincidence would have it, they end up deciding that the best way to fill the vacant Mid-South Tag Team titles is through a tag team tournament. And it just so happens they've got a show at the Superdome booked a few weeks down the line. So in one of those amazing coincidences, they have this huge tag team tournament and it just so seems that the timing is right for it to happen at the Superdome. Yes, they bring in uh, a big team, uh, outside team of Dusty Rhodes and Andre the Giant. They also announce Buck Robley and Ted DiBiase, but Ted DiBiase is injured in an angle in Georgia by the Freebirds. And it seems that this was part of the plan was they were going to advertise him, but then acknowledge the injury and announce uh, Killer Carl Cox taking his place. Although I believe Cox actually doesn't make the show and it's Robley and one of the mid-card wrestlers. But this big tag team tournament comes down to uh, JYD and Murdoch and the Grappler and the Super Destroyer. And during the match, a mysterious, unknown masked man who looks a whole lot like Ernie Ladd, who has a very distinct appearance, uh, interferes and helps Grappler and Super D win the match and the tag team titles. Over the course of several episodes of TV, this plays out with uh, the board of directors you know, saying if it turns out it's Ladd, he's suspended. Ladd denies it. He claims it's Sonny King, who's actually wrestling for Jarrett at the time. Um, uh, they do an angle on TV where a different, an obviously different person wearing the same mask that Ladd was wearing at the Superdome comes in and interferes so that Ladd can say, see, I told you it wasn't me. Uh, it doesn't quite work. And they claim to have proof that it's Ladd and he's suspended. That's it. He's out of here. Or so we think, because I, one to two weeks later, he shows back up on TV and he says he has a manager's license. The suspension only applied to him as a wrestler, John. It didn't say anything about him being a manager. And on the same episode of TV, he announces his new protégés, uh, the Samoans, Afa and Sika, ah. who have been here for several weeks and are being moved up the cards. And he challenges JYD and Murdoch to defend the titles against the Samoans that week on TV. And they do. And Ladd uh, interferes. I think he pulls the leg 
of uh, one of the baby faces during a suplex attempt, and the Samoans win the belts. Uh, and this time, even though there's clear interference on behalf of Lad, this time it's not uh, overturned and building to a tournament. This is one of those, uh, when you're living in the moment, it probably you don't notice these little details that we yeah. can nitpick on later. But so the Samoans, Alpha and Sika, are your Mid-South Tag Team Champions. I forgot to mention that while Grappler and Super D won the tournament at the Superdome, JYD and Murdoch actually won the titles back from them pretty soon thereafter on a house show. So that explains how when Ladd uh, announces he's managing the Samoans, he's challenging JYD and Murdoch for the tag titles. There's so many pieces to these Watts angles that I have a hard time (laughs) keeping all of them in line. But what I do have in line and in order are the spot ratings for the second quarter of 1981. And you can view these on the blog, chartingtheterritories.com. The top three wrestlers by spot rating are all part-timers, so they shouldn't necessarily count as regulars on the roster. But as I mentioned, Buck Robley, Dusty Rhodes, and Bill Watts all make a handful of appearances, just enough that I can give them a spot rating. But the top uh, full-timers are Junkyard Dog as a babyface. His spot rating is a .95, and a 1.00 is a perfect score, which means you're in the main event of every card you're advertised on. But for this quarter, Junkyard Dog was pretty close with a .95, and not far behind him was Ernie Ladd with a .92. Dick Murdoch, as a babyface, has a .89, and a little further beneath them are Leroy Brown and the Grappler with a .82 each. And this is interesting because the Grappler was the North American champion for most of the quarter, but he is ranked below the tag team feud that's playing out on the house shows. And this is something we have seen fairly regularly since early 1980 is that JYD is uh, clearly the top dog, but um, probably because of, of work re- work rate related issues, he is put in tag team matches more often than not. So his tag team feud usually takes precedence over the singles feud for the North American title. And even uh, in early 1980, when Ted DiBiase was the North American champion. His feud with Killer Khan was generally below a singles feud between Paul Orndorff and Ken Mantell, which had really uh, gotten over and drawn well. Orndorff uh, has maneuvered his way into a title shot uh, against champion the Grappler on an episode of TV. But as the show opens, John, he's not there. (gasps) So uh, Jake Roberts, young Jake Roberts, who had sort of been fluctuating between the upper mid cards and the mid cards. He's a guy who wins and is over, but is not necessarily a serious top main eventer or top contender. So he comes out and says that uh, he went to Orndorff's hotel room, knocked on the door several times and there was no answer. He had the he had the uh, front desk call the room and there was no answer. And Jake just didn't know what to do. So he uh, just left Paul uh, at the hotel room and came came on down. Got to make sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so Grappler is excited about this because he was not looking forward to defending the title on TV against Paul Orndorff, but not so fast. They rule that he must defend the title, but they're going to let him pick his opponent. And they give him a few choices. And John, if if you were the North American champion in early 1981 and you were given these options, uh, you you could choose between Junkyard Dog, Mm -hmm. Dick Murdoch, Kerry Von Erich, and Jake Roberts. Who would you pick? 
I'm probably going to pass on those first three. Yeah, so Grappler, being the smart man and the wily heel that he is, chooses what, you know, is perceived as the easiest option and chooses young Jake Roberts for his opponent. But lo and behold, John, perhaps he underestimated this the future snake, the lanky, lithe, slithery, sneaky, up-and-coming young babyface as Jake Roberts yep. uh, stuns him to win the match and win the North American Heavyweight Championship right there on television. As he's celebrating who should come to ringside but Paul Orndorff. And he is not happy. He blames Jake Roberts. He blame he starts he basically blames everybody. If you really when you read this angle it almost plays out like Jake kind of should be the heel that he abandoned, you know, Orndorff. Um but Orndorff they basically as as it was explained to me by my friend Brian Ackman who runs the Mid-South Wrestling Universe Appreciation Group on Facebook, Orndorff basically became a conspiracy theorist. He uh, oh. blamed Jake Roberts for this. He blamed Junkyard Dog for holding him back. He, he blamed Watts. He, he's just blamed all the baby faces for all the ills befitting him. And lo and behold, we have a new heel, and that is Paul Orndorff. And what's interesting is if you look at Paul's spot rating, and uh, if you've seen the blog, you know I have it color-coded so that when a wrestler is a babyface, their spot rating is displayed in shades of blue. If they're a heel, it's displayed in shades of orange. Well, Orndorff, during this quarter, switches sides, so you'll see for several weeks he's a babyface, and then he's a heel. But what's interesting is his spot rating actually dips a little bit around the time of the turn. And this is something... I think we've talked about before, John, it's what I call a holding pattern. Yep. Remember, when you think about it with the TV, when they tape TV, it airs in some markets within a couple of days, but other markets, it takes several weeks for it to make its way through the territory. So, John, if you're a wrestling fan in uh, Biloxi or, you know, Greenville, Mississippi or Monroe, Louisiana, if you haven't seen that Orndorff has, has turned heel on TV yet, It'd be real confusing if you went to your local house show and saw him against Jake Roberts. Yep. So they do something which is actually fairly uh, creative. They they sort of bump him down the card a little bit and have him wrestle against some mid-carters or some prelim wrestlers. Um, he wrestles Tony Charles a few times. He wrestles Luke Graham once. He wrestles Don Diamond a couple of times. So... He doesn't necessarily need to go full on heel to beat this, you know, preliminary wrestler or mid-card wrestler. So they don't quite give away that he's turned heel. They could just position it as a babyface versus babyface match. Um, but at the same token, if there is one fan in the crowd who, by reading newsletters or by having a friend who lived in New Orleans or Shreveport who called them up, if they know that Orndorff already turned on TV, again, this isn't breaking kayfabe because he's not yeah. teaming with Jake Roberts, for example. So I, I sort of call this a holding pattern. And I actually wrote an article now that Arcadian Vanguard has purchased kayfabe memories. Uh, there is now uh, forums for several of your favorite Arcadian Vanguard podcast, including Charting the Territory. So I have a post where we actually lay out town by town, week by week, who Orndorff wrestles against on the house shows. And you can sort of use that to piece together when the television angle aired in various markets. Huh. 
Looking further down the card, as I mentioned, Orndorff is, is technically an upper mid-carder, although he's just underneath the threshold for being a main eventer. His average spot rating for the quarter is a .79, and anything above a .8 is what I call a main eventer, whereas the upper mid-carders generally go between .60 and .80. So Orndorff is at the very top of the upper mid-carder threshold, and just below him is Heal the Super Destroyer, who, of course, is Scott Irwin. And Scott is interesting. I think we all know, all our listeners are very familiar with him and his brother Bill and the Long Riders and also the Super Destroyer. But uh, he wrestled under various different gimmicks over the years, uh, under masks and sometimes not under masks. And one of the things you pointed out to me, John, was that when he's playing a different role, if he's one of the Lumberjacks or if he's Thor the Viking or if he's the Super Destroyer or if he's himself... He works a slightly different style. Uh, he, yeah. Not a completely different style, no. but he tries to incorporate the same moveset, but taking into account what I guess we would call the background of the character he's working as. So yeah. I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that. He does just, just slightly, and it just fits. I hate to use the word like gimmick, um, but it, it's something that fits the gimmick a little, a little better. Um, uh like for example, in the Long Riders, uh, you know, he still used the the superplex that Super D uh, used, but he I, he always with the Long Riders he had his knee drop, and it's just a knee drop. So I don't know what what the big deal is to me, um, but I just love this knee drop. It's just like super crisp. Uh, it was like a running, jumping knee drop, sort of like you know, like like Bruiser Brody would use, uh, but the impact was was like that of like you know a Harley race you know, the Harley race one where he'd like measure a guy out and just boom. And you're like, Oh my God, did he just actually break this guy's nose. Um, it was like that kind of knee drop. And it's, it's, I don't, I don't know if about, about the work rate or that sort of stuff to tell if he was, you know, particularly good in the ring, but I love watching, watching him work and all these different, different versions of him, whether it's, uh, you know, super D Thor the Viking in Florida, you know, Scott Hogg or, or in the asteroid in Japan. Uh, I mean, the only thing that's kind of like not great is the is the uh, Eric the Yukon Lumberjack stuff. That stuff's not that exciting to go back and watch, but I blame that more on just being a late 70s WWF tag team thing. And I, I you know, and the Super D Superplex, absolutely love the Superplex. Um, I, it's so exciting to see that superplex in like 1982 on, especially the way they would shoot that superplex on Georgia TV, um, where they have the camera at floor level, you know, angled up towards the top turnbuckle, or sometimes you get the wide shot from above. It just looked especially cool shot that way, probably more so than if it was like one stationary hard cam that you would normally see. Uh, I, I just love watching uh, Super Destroyer Irwin and all his different different versions of of him over the years, uh, and I, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit. Like you don't you don't hear a lot of people talking about him. You don't hear his name come up a lot, and I I don't know if he's I don't know if I'd call him underrated, but you just don't hear you don't hear a lot about him. Underappreciated because his his career of course was cut short. Um, yeah, he, he very young. Died. Yeah, he died young. Um, but we've got some YouTube clips, uh, and you can see links to these on the companion piece that I post on the blog. Uh, there's an angle from Florida with uh, him burning Mr. Florida 
who was Paul mm-hmm. Jones with uh, Sir Oliver Humperdinck's cigar. <laughs> that's and that's always a fun angle. The uh, burning the baby face with the lit cigar oh, angle. Uh, you've got we've got a YouTube clip uh, of uh, Reezer Bowden taking a big bump. <laughs> I you mentioned I think every, uh, probably everyone's seen this on the various blooper uh, compilations that are out there, but it's great. He just he just totally uh, takes a a big fall when uh, Super D knocks uh, the podium out of the way. And very maybe and maybe like the most widely disseminated piece of Mid South wrestling uh, footage because that was on all those blooper shows back in the eighties. Yeah, and that's uh, and then there's a match from Toronto with Japanese commentary of Scott Irwin teaming up with Bruiser Brody to face Giant Baba and Jumbo Tsuruta. This was June 29th, 1980, uh, at the Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, that's a couple of talented wrestlers in the ring right there. Tommy Jumbo Tsuruta, Giant Baba, Bruiser Brody, Scott Irwin. That That's great. And uh, Scott would actually face Baba and Tsuruta again later in the year in all Japan. You mentioned he worked as the Asteroid for uh, what I his first tour of all Japan. I don't believe it was his last, but uh, the first time they put him under a mask as the asteroid. Uh, and we've got links. You can see all of his matches from that all Japan tour and also the tour as a whole. Some of the other upper mid carters in mid south in the second quarter of 1981 uh, include Jim Garvin. Jim Garvin had had been in the in some of the main events. Uh, when he was feuding with the Grappler and Super Destroyer, but he's moved down the cards slightly, and he settles into upper mid-carder status, uh, whereas two wrestlers on the rise were the previously mentioned Samoans of Afa and Sika. And if you look at their spot rating week by week, you can literally see them being pushed up the cards. They start the uh, the beginning of the quarter in, in April uh, with a spot rating of a 048 0.49, then up to 0.51, gradually goes up and up and up. And by the end of the quarter, their uh, spot rating is above a 0.80. So by the end of the quarter, they're main eventers. But for the quarter as a whole, since they started in the mid cards and moved up through the upper mid cards and then up to the main events, their average puts them in the upper mid carder category. A little bit further down the card, we have uh, Jake Roberts, who we talked about previously, and Don Diamond, who we also mentioned had uh, been pushed up pretty strong, pushed pretty strongly when he first came in, but then has sort of moved back down the cards and settles into mid-carder status. And we also have Kerry Von Erich. Uh, and the great Kabuki, and both of them come in on a part-time basis. Um, Watts seemed to have a good relationship with Fritz around this time, and he starts bringing in uh, some wrestlers from World Class uh, on some of the shows, uh, but both Kerry and Kabuki appear on TV. They appear on the TV tapings, and then they'll usually stay for a house show one night before or after the TV taping. And another part-timer, Apache Bull Ramos. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting, reading some of the articles that you found about Bull was uh, at the beginning of his career, he was a, a very light wrestler. Yeah. He was about 200 pounds. And uh, by the end of his career, he looked like a man who uh, ate a 200 pound wrestler <laughs> as a pre-match snack. Yeah, or a couple of them. Yeah. yeah, but there's a couple of links that we'll have on our podcast companion piece. Uh, there's a great article from Slam Wrestling. Uh, Slam always does great work. And there's also a nice article by Mike Mooneyham uh, entitled Kind-Hearted Ramos, A Great Heel. And one of the things that I learned from reading the Slam Wrestling article, John, was that um, Bull, by speaking fluent Spanish, 
probably helped him a lot in Los Angeles. He had a, a big run there, and in particular, a feud with Mil Mascaris. Uh, yeah. At one point, he ripped Mascaris's mask off. Uh, they built it to a huge match. And, and I believe in a lot of the interviews, uh, he would hold up the mask that he took from Mascaris and spoke in Spanish. And, and oh, what yeah. a great way to connect with that population living in Los Angeles and to fire them up and get them to want to come to the match. And then another interesting thing from Mooneyham's article was uh, Ramos was the tag team partner of a very young and very green Jesse Ventura in yeah. Portland. Ventura started in Central States. He had a, a six month run there as billed as Jesse Ventura and sometimes as Surf Ventura. But he never really uh, got past the mid cards. Uh, but he went to Portland and immediately he was billed as a protege of Ramos. But Ventura was so green at the time that Ramos was the one who did all the talking in interviews. When you when you see how good a talker Ventura became and, and how natural it seemed to come to him, it's interesting to know that he was so green that his interviews just probably couldn't have cut the mustard. So they had Ramos do the talking for him. Yeah, his promos were good. Like when you when you when when you see him, and even just to, even just to hear some of the, the promos, uh, like where he would say, you know, I I white eyes speak with a forked tongue. You know, he gets like goosebumps on him. He's so like frightening and, and awesome. Even even the uh, the promos where there's no video footage, just the audio, get goosebumps from him. He's fantastic. Um, interesting too, like the. Um, <laughs> the promoters early on, you know, they have a legitimate Native American guy and they wanted to have him portray an Italian. I think John Albano was the name they wanted to use. So it's like they sort of did the reverse Jay Strongbow with him. Um, but that was really interesting. Um, and he was just, and like you're talking about um, with, the, with the feud with uh, Milmascaris. Um, it's funny seeing him in his later later years uh working with like younger high flying guys and it didn't seem like it doesn't seem on paper that that would work but he works i think we have a we're going to post a, a video of him and like dos caras from like 1980 so that's really late in his career near the very end and it's he works fantastically with these like high flyer younger guys so you can imagine him like in the 70s against mill or like a, a young a young Jimmy Snuka. Mm, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and he, you know, he had the, the WWF run in 68, 69. I think they're going to have him originally be managed by wild red berry. And there's a video of that floating around like a, a 1968, 69, a wild red berry promo in color. Um, but Ramos had some deal with Homer Odell. So he goes in with Homer Odell as a manager and sometime tag team partner. And I think Odell works in, single matches too, but it's a it's huge, 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 huge in the Northwest. Uh, like I've always read, I've read about that, uh, Moondog Maine. Apparently there's a match where Maine legitimately broke his arm to the point where the bone was sticking through the skin. And that's what really makes Ramos, uh, a top, a top heel in that area. And he, he had a few, the lasted years with like Dutch Savage and like I said, the young Jimmy Snuka, and like you were mentioning, the classic, the hair versus mask match against Mil Mascaris. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a, a, a very, just a, just a great, a great heel. And the, the promos and just the, the visually with the, with the whip, and he just looks like a frightening, frightening 
frightening man. Yeah, you mentioned some, uh, even on audio, he sounds scary. There's a couple of <laughs> audio clips on YouTube that we'll post to as well. Uh, Kevin Orcutt, who uh, does, has a lot of historical knowledge in, in the Northwest, he's got a YouTube page which mostly features audio-only clips, but some video as well. And there's some uh, Bull Ramos promos posted there, so we'll link to that. And if that's not enough, John, Bull Ramos is forever enshrined in song. Mm, Indie rock band, the Mountain Goats, who are from California, um, they actually released a concept album about pro wrestling called Beat the Champ. And one of these songs is the Ballad of Bull Ramos. Uh, John, have you heard this song or have you heard any of the other songs? I have. I actually, one of the songs from this record I had played uh, during my, my wedding reception, actually. The Legend of Chavo Guerrero? No, I had foreign object. Foreign object, okay. That's got a little sax in it. Yeah. Yeah, the, my, the Legend of Chavo the... Guerrero actually got airplay on Sirius XM on the Indie Rock channel when this album came out. Um, other uh, other songs are Werewolf Gimmick and Stab <laughs> to Death Outside San Juan. And I'm oh, pretty God. sure all our fans uh, know who that is in reference to. But the, yeah, the yeah, Ballad yeah. of Bull Ramos is sort of sung from a first-person perspective, and it's fairly biographical. It talks about uh, after wrestling, he actually ended up having his toe amputated. Uh, I think he stepped on some glass. But uh, one of the lines from the song that I like is, uh, uh, and the doctor recognizes me as the operating theater grows dim. Aren't you that old wrestler with a bullwhip? Yes, sir. That's me. I'm him. So check that out. The whole album is is fantastic. And then the Mountain Goats are a pretty underrated indie rock band from California. And they made a concept album about pro wrestling. So clearly they were fans growing up. Like I mentioned, they're from California. And they, they're talking about uh, Chavo and Bull Ramos and uh, Beat the Champ is the name of the album, which, of course, refers to the television title. So clearly they were wrestling fans growing up. Mm-hmm. But, John, I think you uh, were going to try and stump me with a yeah, trivia yeah. question. Else is another segment. Uh, so, these twelve wrestlers. I got to name all twelve. No, okay. I'm going to name. I'm going to name. I'm going to do the easy part. I'm going to name them. All, right. all of these twelve wrestlers have something in common, uh, and I want you to tell me what it is they have in common. They've Those never been in my are. kitchen. <laughs> that's that's not what I'm thinking of. That's right. that. Well, you know, you haven't heard the wrestlers yet, so they may okay. you may they may have. Uh, Apache Bull Ramos, Victor Rivera, Miguel Perez, Craig Luke Graham, Guillotine Gordon, Hans Mortier, Edward Carpentier, Dominic Danucci, Louis Serdan, Earl Maynard, Professor Toro Tanaka, and Bruno Sammartino. What do all 12 of these wrestlers None of, they have, though they have never been in my kitchen. Uh, I'm going to guess main evented Madison Square Garden. Uh, I'm going to tell you, all 12 of these wrestlers worked both the last card at the old Madison Square Garden uh, on January 29th, 1968, and the first card at the new Madison Square Garden on February 19th, 1968. Okay, so for our listeners, John, you sent me a hint. Yes. You sent me a picture, uh, and, and I, I believe I correctly ascertained that it, it, it was of uh, Bull heading towards the garden. Yes. Uh, which, is why that's, that, which is why I made the guess I did. Um, I, I've been to the garden many times. My first ever wrestling show 
that I oh, attended wow. as a fan was at Madison Square Garden, March 17th, 1985. Wow. The draw was a, so this was two weeks before WrestleMania one. The, uh, the, the big draw to fans there was a live Piper's pit with Mr. T. Oh, wow. Which, of course, did, you know, did, uh, ended up in a pull apart to uh, hype up the uh, main event of WrestleMania. And I, I just remember the heat was off the charts. The actual main event, I think the advertised main event was Tito versus Valentine in either a cage match or a lumberjack match. But the last match on the show was a six man with Andre, Jesse Ventura, Junkyard Dog, and I forget who else. Wow. But young 14-year-old me uh, was at the most famous arena in the world, Madison Square Garden, for his yeah, first Tito, Tito and Greg Valentine always had great, great matches. Oh, yeah. At those, at those shows. Always, always. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I remember participating in my first ever bullshit chant during that show when Valentine <laughs> cheated to win. <laughs> Would be far from my last. Um <laughs> But yeah, oh, memories. Okay, so they were all on the the last show at the old garden and the first show at the new garden. Yes, and yes. and Ramos and Bruno was the main event of that first show. Yeah, right. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's another trivia note for Bull Ramos. He uh, main event of the first show at the new Madison Square Garden. Um, further down the cards, there's uh, always some great wrestlers in the prelims on Mid South Wrestling. We've got Buddy Landell making his first. Appearance in Mid-South, a very young Buddy Landell, a babyface with brown hair. Other newcomers included Crazy Luke Graham, Kim Duck, who uh, this was his first time here since uh, he worked for McGurk in 1974. So that's a very long absence. And Vinny Romeo, who is the future Vinny Valentino, who early in his career worked as Vinny Romeo. And we also have uh, one of those... Uh, ones that, you know, that everybody knows and everyone appreciates his work, but he never quite achieved the levels of superstardom here in the U.S., and that is Tony Charles. We've got a link to a nice summary of his career from the website BritishWrestlersReunion.com. And here's something I didn't know that I learned from this article, John, that back in the 60s, very early in his career, Charles, who... In the U.S. is perhaps best remembered for wrestling in Southeastern. He teamed up in the 1960s in the U.K. with another wrestler who may be best known in the U.S. for wrestling in Southeastern. Who am I talking about? I believe you're talking about Adrian Street. Yes, they uh, teamed up as the Welsh Wizards. Yeah. Uh, very early in both men's careers in the U.K. Uh Tell us a little bit more about Tony Charles, uh, particularly from that article, because that that really encompassed a lot of uh, information oh, about yeah. his career. There, yeah, this is very early on when they were the Welsh Wizards. This was when uh, this was you, you would not recognize Adrian Street in, at, in this ver at this point of his career as the Adrian Street you're familiar with. Uh, later, uh, he was still a, what are they was a, a blue eye? Is that what they call the baby faces in the UK? I the blue so. eye hadn't become a baddie yet. Oh, um, and like, you know, and like, you know, a lot like, you know, Johnny Eagles, who we talked about last month, a lot of these guys, uh, Jackie TV, Palo, Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, Mick McManus, uh, they were on TV so much in those days that they became not only, you know, known to wrestling fans, but they're like household names to everyone. I think in one of the, I don't know if it's this article or one of the other obituaries that I, I, I was reading, like, I think he holds the record for... TV appearances by a, a, a singles wrestler during this era. 
Um, and during for like the early 70s, uh, there seemed to be such like an unprecedented demand for UK wrestlers in North America. And, you know, Tony Charles capitalized on this and uh, came over to the U.S. working for uh, in the Memphis, Louisville for Goulas, early 72, I think. I think one of his first regular tag partners was Len Rossi, who we just talked about. Uh, a few months ago, um, and he's, Tony Charles is one of those guys who's, like you said, his name always hear his name come up when you read interviews with these old timers, and they're asked who was, you know, who was one of your favorite guys to be in the ring with. You know, he seems like a rare combination of a guy who was, who's a, who's a shooter, you know, who could who could wear you out, tie you up, whatever, but who also, you know, worked super light, uh, and was apparently a, a delight to be in the ring with, really easy to work with. Gentle as a feather, unless you tried to take any liberty with him in the ring. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like none other, none other than Carl Gotch called him the most perfect wrestler that he had ever met. You know, Watts always told uh, stories about how Charles would get uh, get drinking a little bit and he'd get like a little tipsy and he'd challenge Billy Robinson. You know, and then Tony Charles was like a shooter. You know, he could he could go. You know, but Billy Robinson was at that that next level of, of shooter. So Robinson would just like wear him out and stretch him eight ways to Sunday. And then they just, they just let him go. And then two of them would just go back to whatever they were doing and act like nothing had, had happened. I think he was also, uh, Charles, Tony Charles, also a version of the kangaroos, right? Al Costello, the, the new fabulous kangaroos, I think. And then yeah, the, the end of the, yeah, towards the end, there was sort of a rotating, a revolving door <laughs> of, uh, of kangaroos. Uh, came in towards the end. But uh, we've got a uh, YouTube clip uh, of a match from Southeastern with Les Thornton. Another, you know, oh, another one in the same vein uh, of, yep. of those, uh, you know, legitimate wrestlers who uh, populated the mid cards for many territories in the 70s when when uh, places like Florida like to have, you know, a little bit of everything on the show. Um, and in particular would would often have legit, you know, shooters or or, you know, scientific matches early on in the card uh, as they build to a crescendo with Dusty Rhodes versus, you know, King Curtis or whoever the heel of the month was. Yep. Um, but yeah, give them a little bit of everything. So a, a TV match from Southeastern, Tony Charles versus Les Thornton. But as we mentioned early at the very beginning, we're talking about a game of human chess in Dallas. <laughs> and, and he, you know, th this would be uh, one of the last gimmicks he used. And this was in world class. He was the checkmate. Yeah. From the Isle of Man, yes. <laughs> yeah, I guess with the the idea being he was such a good, you know, wrestler and counter wrestler that uh, you know, no matter what you know, offense you try to do, he he would always figure out how to put you in checkmate. Yeah. I love the uh like his his mask of like half you know, some of the times he'd have like a standard, you know, like grappler assassin spoiler type looking mask. And then sometimes he would just have like a like a tiger mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like no rhyme or reason. <laughs> I, you know, I, for some reason, I don't, I don't know. I I would think he would maybe do like half, you know, half white, half black on the mask, yes. and yes. then on, and then have a bodysuit where they're it's opposite. You know, <laughs> if, if it, yeah, that just to me would make him look like a human chessboard, and that that sort of fits the gimmick. But yeah, Tony <laughs> Charles, uh, Bull Ramos. Scott Irwin, some of the many great wrestlers that populated Mid-South Wrestling in the second quarter of 1981. And for more on the territory at the time, including a match-by-match, town-by-town recap of the feud between JYD and Murdoch and the Samoans, plus full advertised lineups for 82 
known house shows. And this was at a time when they're generally running one show a night during the week and usually double shots on the weekends. Uh, you can check out the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And I mentioned Brian Ackman earlier. A lot of the info, particularly when it comes to the TV angles that we discussed uh, for this time period, comes from Brian and his Mid-South Wrestling Universe Appreciation group on Facebook. Um, but one place where we don't have a lot of info is uh, the early 60s. And that's been sort of my labor of love these last couple of years is compiling all that information from the uh, from the debut of Danny Hodge in October 1959 all the way forward. And every month on the blog, we sort of look at a new three-month chunk of time, and we're up to the fourth quarter of 1963. We're going to talk about that Um Danny Hodge returns to the territory after a run he had in Portland, but he only stays for a month, and then he goes to East Texas. Uh, he'll come back here for the holidays at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, this leaves a pretty big gap because uh, Hodge had, had been, for the most part, the top babyface almost, you know, straight through since he came in, in in 1959. Once he reached main eventer status in early 1960, he's pretty much here the whole way. I think he leaves for a while to go work for Goulas, uh, and he has that run in Portland in this year. But um, there's a glaring hole at the top of the cards. Uh, Bill Watts, a very young Bill Watts, is used in a high-profile spot. Um, last month, when we looked at the third quarter, he and Jerry Kozak had a big feud with the Great Bolo and the Mighty Bolo. And John, I'm about to do something that has never been done on a wrestling podcast before. Uh-oh. I was wrong about something I said last month. And you're admitting this. And I'm admitting it. On um, air. We talked about the Mighty Bolo. And last month when I was looking at the roster, I sort of speculated that it was probably... Uh, Jerry Usher, who is uh, being used part-time as a wrestler and, and perhaps as a referee. It turns out I was incorrect, and this iteration of the Mighty Bolo was portrayed by Frank Marconi. Hmm. Uh, and it, when when you look further, Marconi had been wrestling in Mid-Atlantic, and right when the Mighty Bolo shows up for this run here is the week after Marconi stops showing up for Mid-Atlantic. So that is further proof that it was him the whole time. But he is unmasked uh, on at least one of the house shows by Danny Hodge. And his tag team partner, the great Bolo, is also unmasked, um, but not in the ring uh, as part of a storyline. Because um, huh. Bolo's gimmick was that he would uh, stick a foreign object underneath his mask and use it to headbutt his opponents. Uh. So they built to a storyline where Bolo would be forced to wrestle without his mask. And this was like the fourth or fifth time that Bolo had been unmasked in this territory. It was at this point, it was like a running gag. They would, you know, he would be unmasked and he'd go away for a couple months and he'd come back with the mask back on. This was just uh, what they did. But this time, uh, as part of the unmasking, he also starts teaming up with a newcomer by the name of Tony Bourne. And this leads to a feud we'll talk about a little bit. I mentioned Watts. Watts actually leaves early in October, uh, goes to Southern California and then goes to Vancouver. And if you've read Watts's book, John, he was not very happy in Vancouver. And he pretty much left in the middle of his run as literally he was at the venue for a show that night and uh, <laughs> decides to get in his car and drive back to Oklahoma. He had already called right. Leroy and Leroy had said, sure, if you can be here by Christmas, we'll book you. So not only does he get in his car and go, but Anton Leone, who's also in Vancouver, says, hey, can I go with you? 
And Watt says, sure. So they both leave Vancouver in, in the in the middle of their runs there and go back to Oklahoma. But what's important about this is that over the Christmas holidays, when he returned to uh, the McGurk territory, he ended up teaming up with Wild Red Barry. You mentioned earlier, uh, but Barry, every year he would come home to uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Uh, I believe it was uh, it had something to do with taxes or, or driver's license or whatever. But since he was a citizen of Kansas, no matter where he was in the world, he had to come back once a year to renew either his driver's license or some sort of tax records. Uh, but he'd always get a couple of bookings. And Watts ends up teaming with Red Barry. And according to Watts, this was a major turning point in his career as Barry took a liking to him and recommended him to Tootsmont and Vince Sr. And the rest, yeah. as they say, is history. Let's talk about tough Tony Bourne. He had been here a couple of times early in his career, but this was his first time back since 1956. So he was gone for over six years and comes back. And it was short but significant, much like Tony himself. Um, he's built up, he's moved up the cards the first couple of weeks. Uh, he's put into tag team matches with, uh, Al Lovelock, who is now wrestling as Al. And then either in parentheses or in quotes, great Bolo Lovelock. So they, uh, he starts using his real name, but they also acknowledge his prior persona. Um, and depending on the town, either during the match or after the match, the two have a falling out. And this leads to a feud between the two with Bolo being the de facto babyface. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, their first match was scheduled for Oklahoma City on November 22nd, 1963, but they had to move it back a week. And what's interesting about this feud, John, is that Bourne is the clear winner. Bourne is the heel, wins the feud. He wins loser-leave-town matches in Oklahoma City, Springfield, and Little Rock, a steel cage match in Wichita Falls, and a Texas Rules match in Tulsa. But Bourne is the one who ends up leaving town. Hmm. I don't know if there's a story behind the story, but his last house show uh, was in Oklahoma City on December 13th, where he beat Mike Clancy, who's one of the main event babyfaces. So he, he beats one of the top babyfaces, huh. and then he leaves. And by the following week, he's back wrestling in Portland. So it's not like he was hurt. He just, for whatever reason, uh, I guess perhaps the same reason that Watts left Vancouver in the middle of the <laughs> night. Maybe they maybe they did sort of, some sort of trade. Um, but Bolo, who loses the Loser Leaf Town matches, he's basically sent down to the uh, Louisiana house shows in Shreveport and Monroe. So he is not booked in any of the towns he lost a Loser Leave match in for over a month, and they do an angle in January to set up his return to those towns. So Bourne being in a major stipulation match was nothing new for him. Mm. And I really, I have to say, I didn't know a whole lot about Tony Bourne, other than obviously he was a mainstay in Portland, and he had uh, a couple of pretty big runs in East Texas. But what I didn't know was that he had a huge run in 1953 in Mexico. And you pointed out, John, that perhaps one of the reasons why he uh, did so well in Mexico was his size. As we mentioned, he was pretty short by professional wrestler standards in America. However, in Mexico, he probably fit in quite well with the crew there. He was built at like 5'9", right? Like, wasn't he? Which is, if he, he was built at 5'9", you could, you, you, it's almost like, well, maybe he was even, not even 5'9", you know, maybe he was 5'7", or something, yeah, you know? The, who yeah. knows what the real height was. But he yeah. had two 
huge uh, stipulation matches, which in Mexico they call apuestas. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Matches. Uh, he lost his hair to Black Shadow. And then he lost his beard to Blue Demon. Now, Black Shadow and Blue Demon were a tag team, and they were babyfaces. They were huge, huge babyfaces at the time. As a matter of fact, the year earlier, 1952, one of the most important matches in Mexican wrestling history took place involving Black Shadow and El Santo. And this was a mask first mask match, which was, which was nothing new. But this match ended up being so big and so renowned that it's what made these stipulation matches, the mass versus mass, the mass versus hair, the hair versus hair. It really made them into a big deal. It was a turnaway crowd at Arena Coliseo, which led to the building of a larger arena. That match drew so well and they turned away so many fans that they literally took an arena that they hadn't run shows in for a few years. They had been using it uh, as as their training center, but they decided to turn that into a much larger arena, which uh, became Arena Mexico, which was where the really big matches were held. And the other thing that happened as a result of that mass versus mass match was that they basically had to turn El Santo babyface. Because he was the huh. heel in that match. Santo and Gory Guerrero, as the original Atomic Pair, were heels for a large chunk of time. But uh, the match was so big and so renowned that it they ended up turning Santo babyface. So that one match was responsible for one of the biggest babyface turns of perhaps the most well-known legend in all of Mexican wrestling. The yeah, building cool. of a new arena to house big crowds and establishing these stipulation matches as a really big deal. So a year later, when Tony Bourne has two of them, that's a pretty big deal. So he lost his hair to Black Shadow, and you would normally think that that's the blow-off. But losing his beard to Blue Demon might have been (laughs) even more important, because, John, you mentioned he used his beard in a way that a lot of wrestlers didn't. Yeah, he used like he used his beard like as a weapon. Like he would he would use in the way a normal heel would do, like an eye rake with their their you know their their fingers, their nails, or whatever. He would use his beard to rake the eyes. Like I can't really call that a, a foreign object. That is a, a domestic object. I don't know. Well, he if he was well, if he was an American in Mexico, the beard oh, was foreign so, yeah. of foreign origin. I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. But yeah, that's what he would use that as a, so it made, it wasn't just like a, it sounds kind of, kind of goofy when you first read it, like a hair versus beard match, but it was actually, you know, you're taking away one of his, his assets in the ring. Yeah. And, and this was not the most unusual stipulation match that he uh, ever participated in. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Because in Houston, he uh, participated in a match with Danny McShane, where the stipulation going in was the loser must bathe a jackass. And John, before you say anything, no, I wasn't there at ringside. They, they didn't bathe me. I wasn't even an bathing. actual donkey. Yep. Uh, and this was set up uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, Born and Born and his manager Leo Newman were feuding with Danny McShane, uh, but first Born and Newman uh, distracted McShane during a match with a dried-up rubber chicken, <laughs> indicating they thought he was afraid to meet them. And then the week after that, McShane turned the tables by bringing a pair of jackasses to ringside, yeah. symbolizing Bourne and his manager. Yeah. So they have a match where the loser is going to bathe a jackass. Yeah. And what's interesting is Bourne wins the match. 
he had interference from his manager, Leo Newman. So um, when it came time to bathe the jackass, uh, a bunch of baby faces came to the ring and basically forced the manager, Leo Newman, to bathe (laughs) the jackass. So Bourne uh, found a way of, uh, you know, winning matches, but uh, having to adhere to the steps of the loser. He won the loser yeah. leave town matches in the McGurk territory, but he ended up leave, leaving town and he won yeah. the loser must bathe the jackass. But his manager was the one who did the bathing. But uh, we talked about Bourne most being known for being in Portland. And what's interesting is uh, it's been said that uh, Don Owen had a newcomer on on his roster that he wasn't quite happy with. And he was looking to get rid of him early on, but Tony actually went to bat for this youngster. He saw something in him, although as as we'll discuss later, there was another reason. But basically, Tony offered to team up with this youngster. That youngster was Lonnie Moondog Maine. Mm-hmm. And the rest, as they say, is history. But you uh, mentioned something interesting uh, that you read in Dean Silverstone's book, I Ain't No Pig Farmer. And, and oh, just yeah. to let you know, I, I'm actually currently reading that book. I'm about two thirds huh. of the way through it um, based on you bringing this story up uh, yeah. sort of inspired me to order it. So, but we have a little more insight from Dean on why Tony went to bat for Lonnie in Portland. And it's from uh, Dean Silverstone's book, I Ain't No Pig Farmer. But John, what was that reason? Yeah, he uh, Dean told a story about he was promoting shows I think about Port Angeles, Washington, uh, early mid '60s, and basically running outlaw shows. Uh, he's just he's drawing like mediocre type gates. So he's he's looking for something or someone uh, who will really draw like a good house to get the get the gates up. So he calls up uh, Shag Thomas and Tony Morton, huge names in the Pacific Northwest at this time, and you know without hesitation, those guys agree, even though it was an outlaw show. You know, Dean figures, since, since those guys were so essential to the Portland promotion, that they could do more or less whatever they want without fear of, of repercussion. Uh, a couple of days before the show, Tony Bourne calls him, and Dean is sort of freaking out because he thinks Bourne's going to cancel on him. But Bourne just says, you know, hey, no, 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 look, I got this kid down here in Portland. Uh, Don Owen won't let him get started. Good kid, just a little green. I want to help him out. So right up with us, can he can he can he work on one of the matches on the card? So Dean is so relieved that Bourne and Shag Thomas aren't canceling. He's just like, sure, no problem, absolutely, yep, bring him up. Uh, and the kid that he brought with him was 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 Lonnie Maine. So it turns out, like back in the in the fifties, Lonnie's father, Kenny Maine, was one of the guys who helped break Tony Bourne into the business. So tough Tony Bourne, being being thoughtful Tony Bourne here. Yeah, he's just a big old favorite. softy. Big old softy, despite the beard. Uh, Tony even asked Dean uh, to introduce Lonnie under another name so as to not, you know, hurt Lonnie's chances of working for Don Owen because he was essentially working an outlaw show. I think he worked under the the Kentucky Kid with that two night. D's and uh, two D's, yes. <laughs> and I think uh, we, we we plugged uh, the Kevin Orcutt's page. I think there's some good audio of Tony Bourne up there also that is fantastic that we will probably link to those also yeah and we're going to link to those audio clips and also a video clip of the match with roddy piper there's not oh, yeah. a whole lot to the match but uh just like buddy rose last month any opportunity i can find to watch roddy piper 
uh, in the ring or on the mic, I, I will take. Uh, but, we, you know, we mentioned uh, Tony Bourne using the beard as one of his signature spots. His two other signature spots were the uh, punch to the solar plexus <laughs> and the uh, bombs away leg drop. It's a, it's, this is a great little clip, though. I love that Piper sells his ass off for Tony Bourne. And Tony Bourne's like in his mid-50s here. It, it looks, looks every day of it, too. But I lo- this clip is great because you get to see Piper in 1980, which is awesome. And you also get a real sense of Bourne's size. Like we said, like build at like 5'9 or something. And Piper was like six foot. I think in his book he says he's six foot one and a half inches. Uh, not a big guy, but next to Tony Bourne, he looks like freaking Ernie Latt, you know? And Piper sells his ass off on They brawl through the crowd like they're Abdul and Brody. It's it's, it's crazy. It's, it's a really really cool yeah, little match. Yeah, it, it's a fun little. It's a fun short brawl. Uh, yeah. The rest of the roster in 1963. We mentioned uh, Hodge in briefly. Watts there for a couple of weeks and then leaving and then coming back. Uh, Lovelock and Bourne. Uh, the other top babyface. The other main eventer was Mike Clancy. Uh, on the in the upper mid cards we have. Baby faces Jerry Kozak, Joe McCarthy, Jack Curtis Jr., who we talked about a couple months ago, who passed away uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, also, branding iron Tom Bradley, who is a fixture of this territory for years and doesn't really get talked about a lot. He actually turned babyface. He was working uh, a lot in Shreveport, Louisiana, and they turned him babyface during the quarter. And also Ani Wiki Wiki. Mm. On the heel side, we've got Carol Krauser, uh, newcomer Terry Garvin. Uh, Anton Leone, who we mentioned previously, had left uh, and then came back with Watts. Also, Corsica Joe, Mr. Suzaki, and Ali Bay. And Ali Bay here is not the same Ali Bay that would wrestle uh, in Mid-South and Central States and other places in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, who was also known as the Turk. Two different guys. Mm-hmm. Further down the cards, we have Frank Marconi, who, uh, after being unmasked when he was the mighty Bolo, uh, would continue to wrestle under his real name. Um, our friend and, and, uh, the guy whose fan club you are the president and CEO of Red McKim, um, a Paul Jones, not the Paul Jones, but a Texas based wrestler who was mostly known as, I believe, Sid Jones, but would wrestle here as Paul Jones, uh, Ken Hollis, Jerry Miller, uh, and, uh, a couple of interesting names, one of whom is not at all associated with this territory, and that was a young babyface by the name of Eddie Sharkey. We'll talk about him in a little bit, but I want to talk about uh, one of the uh, mid-card heels, and that is Mario Galento. Oh, baby. Uh, We mentioned at the top of this podcast, we're going to talk about some dirty laundry being aired in Memphis. Um, Mm -hmm. the, The thing that most people know about Mario Galento is his radio interview from Memphis in 1974, exposing the business. Yes. Uh, Our good friend Bo James uh, uploaded the full interview to YouTube, and we'll link to that. Uh, But, you know, this is 1974 in Memphis, and and Galento pretty much exposes the business. Uh, What's interesting is he kind of implies that Memphis wrestling is all a fix and in other places, it might not be. He doesn't quite say yeah, it's, it's fake it. in Memphis and it's real everywhere else, but he does seem to imply that uh, wrestling in, in Oklahoma and Texas and other places, uh, the guys on top 
aren't, you know, aren't there because they were told, you know, because their opponents were told to lose, but that they're very skillful wrestlers. But he seems to apply that in Memphis, yeah. the guys who are on top are only there because they're protected by the powers that be. But one of my favorite things yeah. about this interview, John, is the first, it's a call-in show, the first woman caller. She talks about watching a, a match on TV where the heels are attacking the babyface with a chair. And she originally called the police. To try and get them to stop yeah. them. And when that didn't work, she called the TV station and she says that she told the uh, operator that answered, for God's sake, stop the murder on TV. <laughs> she also compares, you know, pro wrestlers to to astronauts, which I, I love this. She's like, you know, if a wrestler gets hurt in the ring, it's what it's what they chose to do. If If an astronaut gets stranded on the moon. That's the life they've chosen. You know, it's like it reminded me of like Hyman Roth talking to Michael Corleone in The Godfather. You know, like this is the business we've chosen. It reminds me of something it like that. It reminds me of the letter I posted to Twitter uh, about a week or two ago. Uh, a woman from Nashville actually wrote a letter to the Alabama Athletic, uh, oh, Alabama yeah. Wrestling Commission, uh, complaining about the heels uh, cheating uh, on television. And what, you know, what will the kids think if they see cheating uh, on televised wrestling. Um, but, you know, there are yeah. so many of these and it, it sure seems that this whole exposing the business stuff is uh, pretty focused on Tennessee uh, between this one in Memphis. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, they, what was it? Plan B uh, for, for Knoxville. Yeah. This all seems to happen in the Tennessee territory. But the impetus for this was uh, another well-known moment uh, amongst uh, wrestling fans where on live TV yeah. in Memphis during a match between Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler, who should come running in uh, completely unscripted and totally as a shoot <laughs> trying to beat the shit out of Jerry Jarrett, but Mario Galento. Yeah. Yeah. I've now, I've heard a couple different versions of this. I've heard like the, the story... I think Lawler tells a version of it and uh, the Galento's widow also tells a version of it. And like the way, the way I I've heard it, I don't know if I might be conflating the two stories, but uh, like, so Jarrett, this is like 72, 73, I think. Right. And like uh, Jarrett's a baby face, Lawler's heel. Uh, and Mario Galento felt that he was misused or screwed out of, of money by Jarrett. Right. And he'd been working prelims like on the Memphis side, uh, mostly run by Jared. So he decides to just attack Jared live on TV. So Galento, who was also who was a heel at the time, jumps Jared, a baby face. And Lawler, also a heel, has to pull Galento off of Jared. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not where it ends. Like he comes back later in the show to attack Jared again, this time with a nightstick. Um, and again, Lawler is able to grab Galento and like Jarrett is able to get the nightstick from Galento and Galento gets hit across the head with the, with the nightstick and Lawler. This is like the, the genius of, of guys like Lawler back in, in these days. He able, he's able to explain everything away on TV by saying, oh, that's Galento. He's just he's just crazy. I'm not going to let him get hurt by Jerry Jarrett. I want Jerry Jarrett all to myself to, to explain away him breaking the two up apart on a yeah. on TV. And, and this is a young Jarrett. This is what, 74 or maybe late 73. So he is, yeah, uh, I, he's only been wrestling a couple of years. And I think he started when he was still in of, of college age. So he's very early twenties, maybe 24 
uh, at this point in time. So pretty heads up thinking uh, on the fly when Mario Galento comes running out on live TV. One of the interesting facts uh, about Mario Galento that is not crazy, but is just interesting. Um, his One of his early ring names was Butch Boyette. And it, the genesis of that was almost certainly because his uh, day job uh, when he first broke into wrestling was he was a butcher. Uh, so they came up with the name Butch Boyette. Uh, and there's also a great article on him in Greg Oliver's fantastic book, uh, yeah. The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Heels. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's just uh, buy the book because there's some crazy stories in there. Uh, you know, it's, uh, God, I mean, you know, we always say this, but, it, you know, we always talk about these guys who even by pro wrestling standards seem batshit crazy. Oh yeah, this but they're guy, all. But if they all, if everyone we talk about is batshit crazy, even by wrestling standards, then we're setting the standard too low, and we should just agree that they were all completely batshit crazy, and that's why they got into pro wrestling as opposed to being insurance adjusters. Yeah, that's exactly what I have in my notes for Galento. It's like back in the '30s and '40s, you had guys like Galento who got into wrestling. You know, because there were very few desirable means of employment for someone like him, like I said, like a butcher, or, you know, Stanley were sharecroppers, his papa was a moonshiner, you know, he lived on trains like a hobo for years, you know. Uh, I think that his widow said he got into wrestling out of necessity because, like, his baby brother was sick, so he needed money to buy milk, you know, so that's what he ended up doing. Uh, I was just like this really tough dude, and this combination of sincerity and roughhousing and just being wound really too tight a lot of the time <laughs> and i don't i don't mean like a tough guy like a like a shooter like a tony charles just like in a shooter in the literal sense like he got in gunfights and bars um <laughs> like there's i was reading like the career synopsis of them it's like oh this is probably just his widow waxing nostalgic about the old days and the days gone by she's probably exaggerating but no i like looked up and found a clipping from the like the montgomery advertiser from 1959 uh and the dude sunny bird like the vic the victim was a local Memphis tough guy, like previous to this incident, been convicted twenty nine times of incidents involving brawling or disturbances. Not just arrested and released, convicted twenty nine times. And this is the guy who Mario Galento decides to get in a scrap with in a bar. And it seems like the argument was basically the age old, oh, you're a wrestler, you think you're tough, I think I could take you. And normally you hear those stories, and, and they end up one of two ways. The wrestler ends up beating the drunk guy in the bar, or someone's able to mediate, talk everybody down, and they shake hands and, or do shots or whatever. But this escalates to the point where, where, where gunfire is exchanged, and they both end up in jail, like which is... It's just insane. Like, yeah, there's so many stories that we think they can't possibly be true. But, you know, nowadays, thanks to the research tools that are available to us, we can, in in many cases, verify that indeed they happen. We're going to talk a little bit later about sources and, and, you know, whether you should believe everything you read or, you know, try and figure out how it came about. But like you said, this sounded too crazy to be true. But we went out and you went out and found the article that proves that uh, it is true. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, just fascinating, fascinating stuff in the, uh, history of professional wrestling. Uh, yeah. half of them involving Mario Galento, the other half involving <laughs> Chris Colt. Um, but one of the things I loved from the radio expose was he threw in a little line. He's talking about Terry Garvin, um, who's in the territory at the time being managed by his quote unquote, younger brother, Jim Garvin, a very young Jim Garvin. And Galento says something like, yeah, they're funny in the ring, but they're funny outside of it too. 
Yes. And then, <laughs> then, then, then some stuff gets dropped out from the like bleeps, not, not bleeps, but you can hear them punch out of the, whatever he's, he's like, I don't think I could say it on the radio. And it's like, Ooh. ooh. <sighs> yeah. So uh, listen to that. Like I said, to our, our friend, Bo James and my, my, uh, trainer for all intents and purposes my trainer and mentor uh in independent pro wrestling bo james posted the uh whole uh, audio to that interview so check that out um another name who is nowhere near as controversial as most of the guys we talk about um and who is not generally associated with this territory but had a brief run here as a young up-and-coming babyface eddie sharkey I think Sharky is best known not as a wrestler, but as a trainer. As the story goes, um, his uh, he married a wrestler, a female wrestler. And uh, when she had kids, he decided to pretty much retire from wrestling in order to stay at home or be close to home and be able to raise the family without having to move them around all the time. Ends up uh, at some point in the 80s working as a bartender at a bar in Minneapolis called Grandma B's. Mm. G-R-A-M-M-A. B apostrophe S. So uh, apparently grammar was not a highlight of grandma's. <laughs> oh, thing. Um, but uh, as the story goes, uh, there were four bouncers at this bar that uh, Sharky got to know. And they were, I believe it was Rude, uh, Darso, and uh, Hawk and Animal. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Sharky still had connections in wrestling. And apparently around this time, some uh, some of the undercard guys who were wrestling for Vern um, had sort of let were venting to Eddie and saying they were unhappy with their pay. So the, these two things happening right around the same time sort of gives Sharky the impetus to a start a wrestling school or if not a full on school, at least to start training these four bouncers um, and to open up a uh, wrestling promotion, which was uh, later known as Pro Wrestling America, which was also where where Sean Waltman uh, got his start, you know, several years later. Also, Derek Dukes, uh, where he uh, um, considering we had a boxing match uh, the night before we recorded this, where it sure looked like a guy took a dive to a YouTube star. Uh, We might as well also talk about Derek Dukes. Um, who uh, was accused of taking several dives in a brief boxing career, including uh, one, I believe, against Mark Gastineau. Oh, wow. But yeah, so Eddie Sharkey ended up uh, training uh, every every name wrestler that came out of Minnesota in the 80s was uh, trained by Eddie Sharkey. But what's really interesting about this uh, is, is I always look at things from a different angle. I didn't want to know what happened to these wrestlers. I wanted to know... What happened to Grandma Beats? <laughs> so I went digging and I found out it was closed in 1984 for failure to pay taxes. Oh, no. But the spot where it sat is currently the site of... Are you ready for this, John? I'm ready. Psycho Susie's Waterfront Lounge, Ooh. which was formerly known as Psycho Susie's Motor Lounge. But apparently, I guess they decided since they were on the water, calling it a no. waterfront lounge uh, gave it a, a bit more cachet. Um, but it legitimately is one of the most renowned tiki bars in the U.S. Oh. I don't know how many tiki bars there are in the U.S., but uh, this one is one of the most uh, well-known ones. And they yeah. claim, John, to have the largest collection of both leopard furnishings and fake wood carpeting in North America. Wow. They have a website www.psychosusies.com. They have been closed for quite some time due to a COVID, but I believe they are. Um, oh, here, we want to hear something amazing. So we're recording this on Sunday, April 18th. Yeah. And this was their 
pre-opening weekend, and their grand reopening will be tomorrow, April 19th. Wow. John, we should we That's should hitch a we should catch a flight. We should meet up in Minneapolis and we should be there for the grand opening, uh grand reopening of Psycho Susie's waterfront lounge and we should probably check out the bouncers and see if they have what it takes to become a professional wrestler <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we should we should just drive there like watson leon i'll be i'll be leon you be Watson. <laughs> um but uh eddie sharkey like i mentioned really doesn't get uh much publicity for his wrestling career um you uh posted a uh you sent me some pictures of an article from a march 1969 <laughs> wrestling review yeah. um there's also a documentary on the Minnesota Wrestling Club that has some sharky footage. And there's an interview with Wade Keller. But um, uh, anything from that Wrestling Review article stick out to you? There are a couple of really weird quotes in this article. Like, they kind of almost, they, they sort of bury him in this opening paragraph. Like, they're like he has the build for wrestling, but not the size or looks. Like, okay, this is an article about this guy. And later on in the article, <laughs> it's like, he has no special hope. After which they go on to list some of the holds that he likes to use. <laughs> and near the end of the article, when asked about his hobbies, Sharky, perhaps you know, prophetically, refers to his ever-growing gun collection, <laughs> which I thought was odd. And not coincidentally, there's also a photo photo in the article of Sharky and his future wife, uh, Princess Little Cloud, real name Dixie Jordan. So it's, a, so it's a weird little article. In the article, he claims to have wrestled... Uh to a draw with Danny Hodge. I don't yeah. believe that to be the truth, <laughs> um, but he, uh, he may have crossed paths with Hodge at some point along the line. Uh, you never know, but um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting look at a, uh, a part of Sharky's career that doesn't get a lot of uh, publicity, but is worth documenting, or as I like to say, worth charting. Um, mm -hmm. But what's interesting, the last name on the roster for the fourth quarter of 1963 was a newcomer who debuts the very last week of the year. He's a young babyface by the name of Cowboy Ron Reed. And of course, we all know him uh, as Buddy Colt, which was the name he used uh, later in his career. Um, you know, since he just passed away, I think the most important stories uh, uh, about him ha have all been told. Um, but it's just interesting to see his name pop up. Uh, and since he just shows up for the very last week, we can't really see how how high he gets in his first run here. But I don't believe he got out of the prelims or out of the mid cards. But we'll take a look at that next month when we cover the first quarter of 1964. It will be interesting to chart his path as he comes back here several times over the years, leading up to his big heel turn um, and his big run as a tag team partner of Jack Donovan's. Um, but I want to move on and go to Stats 101. And John, I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, no. Okay. When was the first Texas death match? Well, that's a, that's 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 been open for debate. We had a we had we had you had a a, a Twitter query about that a couple of weeks ago, and there's a lot of back and forth. Exactly, um, a lot of back and forth. Um, actually, I I I actually purchased a, a book. I purchased the Amarillo book from Scott Teal to try to try to figure that out as well. And mm -hmm. I, I, I I I believe I ended up with the. Uh, Essentially the same, 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 uh, same answer that you had. Well, yes, but, but again, that came from the press clippings from the newspaper. Exactly. Um, and, and yeah. one of the things, you know, 
we don't know for a fact that it's true. It may very well have been, and I'm not claiming it's not. I have no evidence to the contrary. I'm just saying in order to know for a fact that this was the first ever Texas death match. And when I say that, what I mean is the first ever match with the stipulations that we commonly, uh, you know, attach to a Texas death match. Yep. You would have to know the match stipulations for every known match in the history of wrestling prior to August 22nd, 1952. And we don't have that. And uh, we have far less of those matches, you know, in in wrestling history than you might think. And we talked about that last month with the uh, unknown unknowns. Um, We have far less complete records of of pro wrestling cards prior to 1952 than, than you probably think. So... Is it possible that this a match with similar stipulations happened elsewhere, never made national press, and Dory Sr. came up with this, this idea independently of that? Of course it is. But what's really interesting in it is the match that is considered the first ever Texas death match, uh, August 22nd, 1952 in Amarillo, where Dory Sr. faces Danny McShane. Again, Danny McShane. Um it was not billed as a Texas death match. It was billed as a, uh, and they build up to the match. They call it a fight to the death. And uh, after the show, the article giving the results, call it the battle to the death. It very clearly has the rule set of a Texas death match, but the earliest documented instance of the phrase Texas death match used to describe a, a wrestling match um, happens the following year in uh, May of 1953 in Augusta, and then a few months later in August 53 in Tampa. And there are two people that are in Augusta in May and in Tampa in August, and those are Tex Riley and Bobby Lane. However, neither of those was in Amarillo in 1952. It, it, it would make a whole lot of sense if one of them was, you know, in Amarillo in August 52, saw Dory and McShane in this match, and then brought the stipulation with them yeah. to these places. Uh-huh. But it seems that uh, how how this happened, I don't know. But most history sites claim that the first ever Texas death match was the uh, four plus hour match between senior and Mike DiBiase. And that was like 13 years later. Yeah. So it wasn't that one. And uh, our, our friend, John McAdam uh, mentioned that he first heard um, that Dory senior uh, invented the Texas death match uh, from an after mag. And here's what I would say to that. Where do you think Apter got that information? Yeah. Probably from Junior or from Terry. Uh, yeah. And again, that doesn't mean it's not right. I'm just saying if the claim was that their father invented the Texas death match, of course, they're going to repeat that story. Um, yeah. And you found something interesting. You found even before 1952 uh, references to a match stipulation called Texas rules, which yeah. in later years was uh, used to describe a Texas death match. But at the time, it was used to describe a match with what I will call lax rules, mm-hmm. where it's a rougher style and maybe the referee will let things slide, let it get a little more violent before calling for a disqualification. Yeah. So 
again, I have no information that uh, states that someone other than Dory Sr. invented the Texas Deathmatch. I, I just want to say it's impossible to verify that as a fact. And the next question I have for you, John, is who was Dusty Rhodes' <laughs> opponent in his first match at Madison Square Garden? Because for many, 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 many years, everybody thought it was Rocky Tomeo. Yeah. But Richard Land, who uh, now uh, runs the History of WWF website, uh, found an audio tape where they are, where Vince Jr. is uh, discussing a match between Dusty and Pete Doherty. And it is described as Dusty's Madison Square Garden debut. So for um, several hours on March 29th, myself, you, and several very well-known wrestling historians all dove into this. Yeah, it was a hell of an afternoon. We, we have no clearer picture. So what we'll say is this. Um, there are no other known matches between Dusty and Pete Doherty or between Dusty and Rocky Tomeo. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but we don't have a record of it. And certainly, Dusty did not wrestle both of them on different MSG shows. Uh, we have pretty complete information for Massive Square Garden. There's not a missing show. And uh, after Dusty's first match at the Garden, he, which was March 7th, 1977, um, the second show at the Garden, he uh, wrestles Tor Kamada in a uh, match much higher up on the card. And after that, he's off to the races with Superstar Graham. So there was not an opportunity for another match of him being built up. So there's apparently audio describing a match between Dusty and Pete Doherty, which took place at Madison Square Garden. The uh, original ad for the match lists him against Doherty, but the program lists him against Tomeo. The newspaper results... Uh, lists him as having defeated Doherty. Yeah. So it's interesting uh, in that we don't know how very well-respected sources uh, have this as Dusty versus Rocky Tomeo, because uh, it's in Scott Teal and uh, J. Michael Kenyon's book. Um, it's in a few other books as well. What we can speculate is that, the, like we said, the program listed Dusty versus Tomeo maybe... Uh, Somebody just uh, had the program and, and, you know, circled the the winners and X through the losers. Um, a lot of times when people do that, when there's a substitution, they'll cross out a wrestler's name and write in the sub. Perhaps Tomeo uh, was listening to the program, but he actually wrestled against Doherty and whoever was transcribing results didn't make that change. But what makes this even more interesting is that apparently at one point in time on the WWE Network, there was a video labeled yeah. as Dusty Rhodes versus Rocky Tomeo from Madison Square Garden on March uh, 7th, 1977. But the video no longer exists, so we can't verify this. I think, so, I think uh, and, and, and McAdam, I think, also. Uh, yeah, McAdam has a vague, not, and not even vague, more than vague. He very much seemed to recall watching an uh, watching a video of uh, some highlights of Dusty and him uh, against Tomeo is one of those. Yeah. So uh, I have no idea what the answer is, but whichever it is, that means that some well-respected knowledgeable people got it wrong. And again, this is not to, you know, diminish their accomplishments. If 
Scott Teal has one result, uh, you know, or a handful of results wrong out of thousands and thousands of matches listed in his books, that does not knock his credibility in any way, shape, or form. The, the issue is, until we know where he got it from, we can't properly apply weight to it. And uh, that's one of the things as historians we need to do, because as, you know, as we've discussed, what was accepted as fact 20 years ago, based on the available information at that time, now we have access to much more information and can either verify or uh, unverify these things. And it's important to take everything you read on the internet, but even more so everything you read on the internet about wrestling with a grain of salt and to do your best to figure out where they got it from. Um, we talked a while back about uh, the company line being for years that Terry Funk's pro wrestling debut was in Amarillo against Sputnik. It wasn't until uh, years later that he admitted he had wrestled at least one and probably two or three spot shows before that. And and also nowadays we can look that up. We have uh, the clippings for at least one of those matches on newspaperarchive.com. So we can verify that, no, it was not against Sputnik. It was uh, one of these two spot shows the weekend before his match with Sputnik. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, just this past week, I think, I think I posted a, a garden program. I think I'm uh, from April 74. And in, you know, an opening match was an unscheduled match uh, between Johnny Rods and Jumbo Ceruta. Uh, that, you know, the original opening match, like the names are the names on the program are, are scratched out. Johnny Rods and Jumbo Ceruta, Tomomi Ceruta are, are you know, written in with a pen. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing. Like if whoever is compiling these results didn't get a, you know, didn't happen to, you know, got, got the program with uh, the original names there. You know, we might not know about, you know, Jumbo Saruta's like only garden show. Right. If, you know, if it just happens, you know, a chance that he had got a program with, you know, that, that result in there. So it's, it's, it's come down to something like that, you know? Uh, yeah. And with all that being said, as, as a lot of our listeners know, there are many times when results from a house show were called into the newspaper before the show actually yeah. took place. So yep. there are times when the newspaper got it wrong. But in this case, yep. not only would the newspaper need to have got it wrong, but that also means that Vince Jr. needs to have gotten it wrong on this audio footage. <laughs> uh, that doesn't seem likely. And clearly, uh, I've seen pictures of both men. You cannot confuse Rocky Tomeo no, for, Pete, no. for Pete Doherty. So <laughs> this is still a mystery. And does it matter? No, it, it truly doesn't matter who Dusty's first opponent, Massive Square Garden, was. But the fact that right now we don't know and no one can say beyond a reasonable doubt who it was, that's important to know. Because as we get into wrestling history, as I mentioned last month with the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, there's just so much out there that we don't know. And I really want people to... Uh, understand things as someone posted on Twitter uh, that there was a website that claimed that Andre was a heel when he first came to the U S from 71 to 73. And that is demonstrably false. And with five seconds of research, he could have, this person could have discovered that the website was wrong. Instead they posted it and several people said, Nope, wrong. And, and so it's just, you know, 
you gotta really try and dig to the source and learn as much as you can. And that was yeah. my not so uh, subtle segue into this month I learned, where each month both John and I discuss one thing we learned over the last month. John, as always, you will go first. What did you learn okay. this month? This month I learned that the third, the original third Anderson brother was not Ole Anderson. <gasps> it was. It was. It was. It was. It was actually Ron Reed under a mask as Mr. Nils. The third Anderson brother. So I think this was uh, spring, spring of 67. Uh, Ron Reed is in central states at this point. Uh, Paul Jones, again, not that Paul Jones, and not that Paul Jones either. Um, this is the Georgia promoter called Gus Karras, and they want to borrow Ron for a bit. Uh, so Lars and Gene Anderson are in Georgia, and they've been feuding with uh, the Torres brothers, Enrique Ramon, since late 66. And they were worked some kind of an angle that necessitated a third brother. Um, third Anderson brother. I think this was also around the same time that Tim Woods debuted in Georgia as Mr. Wrestling. Um, and he's almost immediately aligned with the Torres brothers. So maybe, maybe the logic was like, oh, we'll bring in a third guy under a master of the Andersons to even this up. Uh, and it's actually Tim Woods who recommended Ron as a, as a third Anderson brother. So way before Arn, obviously, but even before Oli, it was Ron Reed under a mask as Mr. Nils. Uh, and the announcers on TV and in the, in the programs from that time, the reason given for the mask was that Mr. Nils was uh, protecting his status as an amateur wrestler. But in reality, Ron Reed had been wrestling since 62 uh, or so. So that was just a quote unquote storyline. Uh, and all this was a, a relatively brief run for, for, for Ron Reed here. It was significant in his career. Uh, it was the first time that he had worked as a, as a heel. And I believe the first time he worked as a heel, not under a mask as, as handsome Ronnie Reed was, uh, I think for McGurk, uh, in 68, teaming with a dandy Jack. What's interesting, John is my, this month I learned also involves the Andersons. What? In 1973, one of the regular towns in mid Atlantic was Asheville, North Carolina. It ran on Wednesdays and, you know, they ran uh, a few shows a night and they, you know, split up the crews, but when they do split crews, over the course of a year, everyone, you know, is going to work in every town. Uh, you know, the, um, but in 1973, Gene Anderson did not wrestle in Asheville for the whole year. Only wrestled there a couple of times, but he was always in single matches. John, hmm. do you know why Gene Anderson did not wrestle in Asheville, North Carolina for I, a I, year? I do not. I do not. And I'm scared to guess. He was suspended. He was fined $100 by the Asheville Wrestling and Boxing Commission and suspended for one year for what the commission termed an unprovoked attack on the commission secretary, Almond Jones. Yes, Almond spelled like Almond? the nut. Almond, Almond Jones. Jones. <laughs> uh, the article from the Asheville Citizen Times says that Dr. Leon Feldman, commission chairman, announced the suspension and fine after conferring with Jones and the other commission member, Bob Terrell. During the year's suspension, Anderson will not be licensed to wrestle in Buncombe County. So not just Asheville, but the whole county. As the story goes, Jones approached Anderson in the dressing room before Wednesday night's matches. This article is from uh, the fall of 1972. 
approached Anderson in the dressing room before Wednesday night's matches to renew Anderson's annual wrestling license. He said the wrestler grabbed him around the neck and smashed him against the wall. Jones suffered a cut under the chin and bruises. The struggle was witnessed by several other wrestlers and the commission doctor, Dr. John Young, Jones said. You know what? They could they should have just put him under a mask and said it was Nils again. <laughs> bring back, bring back Nils. They could have done that, but I guess they I guess they took those suspensions pretty seriously and didn't try and uh, do any masked shenanigans. But yeah, that's it for this month's episode. We covered a lot of ground. We went uh, all across the world to Mexico with Tony Bourne to Japan with the asteroid. And uh, all spots in between. Now, next month on the podcast, we will look at the second quarter of 1977 in the McGurk territory, and uh, we'll go to the first quarter of 1964. Plus, also, we're going to take our second look at Mid-Atlantic in 1973 and look at the second quarter. Now, aside from uh, Gene Anderson not wrestling in Asheville at that time, there's a very important out-of-the-ring event that happens at the very beginning of the second quarter of 1973 that would set the wheels in motion for major changes to the territory that would happen later in the year. Um, So we will talk about that. We will look at the second quarter of 1973 in mid-Atlantic. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's at A-L-G-E-T-Z Wrestling. Uh, You can also hear me on uh, the most recent edition of the 605 Super Podcast, the opening day Star Wars edition, where myself (laughs) and several of the Arcadian Vanguard crew talk mostly about baseball and about some other things as well. Uh, But that's always a lot of fun. That's my second year participating in the opening day Star Wars podcast. Uh, I, I, I mean, you somehow on the 605 opening day Star Wars, you have the 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 shortest amount of airtime, but somehow managed to steal the show. Oh, but no yeah. Spoilers. By the way, yes. If you ever wanted to hear what the fire alarm sounds like in my in my condo, check out 605 opening day Star Wars because it is podcast is interruptus as right in the middle of uh, the podcast, my fire alarm went off and I literally had to go walk down 13 flights of stairs uh, and evacuate my building. Ah. <sighs> I uh, I was a guest on a podcast about a few weeks ago. There was no fire alarms that I'm, I'm aware of or that I remember. Uh, the episode of the Old School Wrestling Podcast, number 285. And we talk about a, 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 a real stem winder of a match from uh, October 13th, 1984, Sergeant Slaughter and the Junkyard Dog versus the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Uh, check that out if you want to hear more of me. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe to Charting the Territories now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. John, it's been a treat, and we will see you in May. Good night, Almond Jones, wherever you are.